Chapter Three, Saint George for England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Saint George for England by G. A. Henty. Chapter Three, A Thwarted Plot. A boat was rowing rapidly down the stream. It had passed the village of Chelsea, and the men were doing their best to reach their destination at Westminster before nightfall. Two men were rowing. In the stern sat a lady with a girl about eleven years old. A woman, evidently a servant, sat beside the lady, while behind, steering the boat, was an elderly retainer. "'It is getting late,' the lady said. "'I would that my cousin James had not detained us so long at Richmond, "'and then, after all, he was unable to accompany us. "'I like not being out on the river so late.' "'No, indeed, my lady,' the woman replied. "'I have heard tell lately much of the doings of the river pirates. "'They say the boats are often picked up, stove in and broken, "'and that none know what had become of their occupants, "'and that bodies gashed and hewn are often found floating in the river.' "'How horrible!' the girl said. "'Your tale makes me shiver, Martha. "'I would you had said nothing about it till we were on land again.' "'Do not be afraid, Edith,' the lady said cheerfully. "'We shall soon be safe at Westminster.' "'They were now only two or three boats to be seen on the river. "'They were nearing the end of their journey now, "'and the great pile of the abbey could be seen through the darkness. "'A boat with several men in it was seen rowing across the river, "'toward the Lambeth side. "'It was awkwardly managed.' "'Look out!' the steersman of the boat, coming downstream, shouted. "'You'll run into us if you don't mind.' An order was given in the other boat. The men strained to their oars, and in an instant the boat ran with a crash into the side of the other, cutting it down to the water's edge. For a minute there was a wild scene of confusion. The women shrieked, the watermen shouted, and, thinking that it was an accident, strove as the boat sank from beneath them to climb into that which had run them down. They were speedily undeceived. One was sunk by a heavy blow with an oar, the other was stabbed with a dagger, while the assailant struck fiercely at the old man and the women. At this moment, however, a third boat made its appearance on the scene, its occupants uttering loud shouts as they rowed towards the spot. Their approach was heralded by a shower of arrows. Two of the ruffians were struck. One fell over mortally wounded, the other sank into the boat. "'Row, men, row!' their leader shouted, "'or we shall all be taken!' Again, seizing their oars, the rowers started at full speed towards the Lambeth shore. The arrows of their pursuers still fell among them, two more of their number being wounded before they reached the opposite shore. The pursuit was not continued, the newcomers ceasing to row at the spot where the catastrophe had taken place. Walter stood up in the boat, and looked round. A floating oar, a stretcher, and a sheepskin which had served as a cushion alone floated. Suddenly there was a choking cry, heard a few yards downstream, and Walter leapt into the river. A few strokes took him to the side of the girl, and he found on throwing his arm round her that she was still clasped in her mother's arms. Seizing them both, Walter shouted to his comrades. They had already turned the boat's head, and in a minute were alongside. It was a difficult task to get the mother and child on board, as the girl refused to loose her hold. It was, however, accomplished, and the child sat still and quiet by Walter's side, while his comrades endeavoured to staunch the blood which was flowing from a severe wound in her mother's head. 
When they had bound it up, they rubbed her hands, and by the time they had reached the steps at Westminster, the lady opened her eyes. For a moment she looked bewildered, and then, on glancing round, she gave a low cry of delight at seeing her child sitting by Walter's side. On reaching the steps, the boys handed her over to the care of the watermen there, who soon procured a litter and carried her, she being still too weak to walk, to the dwelling of the Earl of Talbot, where she said she was expected. The apprentices rode back to London Bridge, elated at the success of their enterprise, but regretting much that they arrived too late to hinder the outrage, or to prevent the escape of its perpetrators. Walter, on his return home, related the whole circumstance to his master. "'I would you had told me, Walter,' the latter said, "'since we might have taken precautions which would have prevented this foul deed from taking place. However, I can understand your wanting to accomplish the adventure without my aid, but we must think now what best be said and done. As the lady belongs to the court, there is sure to be a fine pother about the matter, and you and all who are there will be examined touching your share of the adventure, and how you came to be upon the spot. The others will, of course, say that they were there under your direction, and we had best think how much of your story you had better tell. "'Why should I not tell it all?' Walter asked indignantly. "'You should never tell a lie, Walter, but in days like these it is safer sometimes not to tell more than is necessary. It is a good rule in life, my boy, to make no more enemies than may be needful. This knight, who is doubtless a great villain, has maybe powerful friends, and it is as well, if it can be avoided, that you should not embroil yourself with these.' Many a man has been knocked on head or stabbed in a dark night, because he could not keep his tongue from wagging. What he said, soon amended, is a good proverb, but I will think it over to-night, and tell you in the morning. When they met again in the workshop, the armourer said, Clean yourself up after breakfast, Walter, and put on your best clothes. I will go with you before the mayor, and then you shall tell him your story. There is sure to be a stir about it before the day is done. As we walk thither, we can settle how much of your story it is good to tell. On their way over the bridge, Geoffrey told Walter that he thought he had better tell the story exactly as it had occurred, concealing only the fact that he had recognised the knight's face. You are best too, he said, mention naught about the white cloak. If you can catch the man of the hut in the swamp, Likely enough the rack will wring from him the name of his employer, and in that case, if you are brought up as a witness against him, you will of course say that you recognise his face, but it is better that the accusation should not come from you. No great weight will be given to the word of apprentice boy against that of a noble. It is as bad for earthen pots to knock against brass ones, as it is for a yeoman in a leather jerking to stand up against a knight in full armour. "'But unless the lady knows her enemy, she may fall again into his snares.' "'I have thought of that,' Geoffrey said, "'and we will take measures to prevent it.' "'But how can we prevent it?' Walter asked, surprised. "'We must find out who this knight may be, which should, methinks, not be difficult. "'Then we will send to him a message that his share in this knight's work is known to several, "'that if any harm should ever again be attempted against the lady or her daughter,' He shall be denounced before King Edward himself as the author of the wrong. 
I trust, however, that we may capture the man of the swamp, that the truth may be wrung from him. By this time they had arrived at the guild hall, and making their way into the court, Geoffrey demanded private speech with the Lord Mayor. "'Can you not say in open court what is your business?' the Lord Mayor asked. "'I fear that if I did, it would defeat the ends of justice.' Retiring with the chief magistrate into an inner room, Geoffrey desired Walter to tell his story. This he did, ending by saying that he regretted much that he had not at once told his master what he had heard, but that although he deemed evil was intended, he did not know that murder was meant, and thought it but, con but concerned the carrying off of some damsel, and that this he had intended by the aid of his comrades to prevent. "'You have done well, Master Walter, since that be your name,' the magistrate said. "'That you might have done better is true, for had you acted otherwise you might have prevented murder from being done. Still, one cannot expect old heads upon young shoulders. Give me the names of those who are with you, for I shall doubtless receive a message from Westminster this morning, to know if I have heard aught of the affair. In the meantime we must take steps to secure these pirates of the marsh.' The ground is across the river, and lies out of my jurisdiction. It is for that reason, Geoffrey said, that I wished that the story should be told to you privately, since the men concerned might well have sent a friend to the court to hear if aught was said which might endanger them. I will give a letter to a magistrate of Surrey, and he will dispatch some constables, under your guidance, to catch these rascals. I fear there have been many murders performed by them lately, besides that in question, and you will be doing a good service to the citizens by aiding in the capture of these men. "'I will go willingly,' the smith assented. "'The Lord Mayor,' said, after a moment's thought, "'he'll be quicker. I will tell the Justice that if he'll come along to the meeting of the roads on Kennington Common, at seven this evening, you will be there with your apprentice to act as a guide.' "'I will,' the armourer said, "'and will bring with me two or three of my men, "'who are used to hard blows. "'For, to tell you the truth, "'I have no great belief in the valour of constables, "'and we may meet with a stout resistance.' "'So be it,' the Lord Mayor said, "'and luck be with you, "'for these men are the scourges of the river.' "'That evening the armourer shut up his shop "'sooner than usual, "'and accompanied by Walter and four of his workmen, and all carrying stout oaken cudgels with hand-axes in their girdles, started along the lonely road to Kennington. Half an hour after their arrival, the magistrate with ten men rode up. He was well pleased at the sight of the reinforcement which awaited him, for the river pirates might be expected to make a desperate resistance. Geoffrey advised a halt for a time, until it should be well-nigh dark, as the marauders might have spies set to give notice should strangers entered the marsh. They started before it was quite dark, as Walter doubted whether he should be able to lead them straight to the hut after the night had completely fallen. He felt, however, tolerably sure of his locality, for he had noticed that two trees grew on the edge of the swamp, just at the spot where he had left it. He had no difficulty in finding these, and at once led the way. The horses of the magistrate and his followers were left in charge of three of their number. "'You are sure you are going right?' the magistrate said to Walter. "'The marsh seems to stretch everywhere, and we might well fall into a quagmire, which would swallow us all up.' 
"'I am sure of my way,' Walter answered. "'And see, yonder clump of bushes, which you can just observe above the marsh, a quarter of a mile away, is the spot where the house of their leader is situated.' With strict injunctions that not a word was to be spoken, until the bush was surrounded, and that all were to step noiselessly, and with caution, the party moved forward, and it was now nearly dark, and as they approached the hut, sounds of laughter and revelry were heard. "'Ah, they are celebrating their success in a carouse,' Geoffrey said. "'We shall catch them nicely in a trap.' When they came close, a man, who was sitting just at the low mouth of the hut, suddenly sprang to his feet and shouted, "'Who goes there?' He had apparently been placed a sentry but had joined in the potations going on inside, and had forgotten to look round from time to time to see that none were approaching. At his challenge the whole party rushed forward, and as they reached the hut the men from within came scrambling out, sword in hand. For two or three minutes there was a sharp fight, and had the constables been alone they would have been defeated, for they were outnumbered and the pirates were desperate. The heavy clubs of the armourers decided the fight. One or two of the band alone succeeded in breaking through. The rest were knocked down and bound, not, however, until severe wounds had been inflicted on their assailants. When the fray was over, it was found that nine prisoners had been captured. Some of these were stunned by the blows which the smiths had dealt them, and two or three were badly wounded. All were more or less injured in the struggle. When they recovered their senses, they were made to get on their feet, with the hands tied securely behind them, were marched between a double line of their captors off the marsh. "'Thanks for your services,' the justice said, when they had gained the place where they had left their horses. Nine of my men shall tie each one of these rascals to their stirrups by halters round their necks, and we will give them a smart run into Richmond, where we will lodge them in the jail. Tomorrow is Sunday. On Monday they will be brought before me and I shall want the evidence of Master Walter Fletcher, and of those who were in the boat with him, as to what took place on the river. Methinks the evidence on that score, and the resistance which they offered to us this evening, will be sufficient to put a halter round their necks. But from what I have heard by the letter which the Lord Mayor sent me, there are others higher in rank concerned in the affair. Doubtless we shall find means to make these ruffians speak. Accordingly, at the Justice's orders, Halters were placed around the necks of the prisoners, the other ends being attached to their saddles, and the party set off at a pace which taxed to the utmost the strength of the wounded men. Geoffrey and his party returned in high spirits to Southwark. On the Monday Walter went over to Richmond, accompanied by the armourers and by the lads who had been in the boat with him. The nine ruffians, strongly guarded, were brought up in the justice-room. Walter first gave his evidence— related how he had overheard a portion of the conversation, which led him to believe that an attack would be made on the boat coming down the river. "'Can you identify either of the prisoners as being the man whom you saw at the door of the hut?' "'No,' Walter said. "'When I first saw him I was too far off to make out his face. When I left the hut it was dark.' "'Should you know the other man, the one who was addressed as Sir Knight, if you saw him again?' "'I should,' Walter replied. He then gave an account of the attack upon the boat, but said that in the suddenness of the affair, and the growing darkness, he noticed none of the figures, distinctly enough to recognise them again. Two or three of the other apprentices gave similar testimony to the attack. A gentleman then presented himself, and gave his name as Sir William de Hartford. He said that he had come at the request of the Lady Alice Vernon, 
who was still suffering from the effects of the wound and immersion. She had requested him to say that at some future occasion she would appear to testify, for that in the confusion and suddenness of the attack she had noticed no faces in the boat which assailed them, and could identify none concerned in the affair. The justice, who had headed the attack on the hut, then gave his evidence as to that affair, the armourer also relating the incidents of the conflict. "'The prisoners will be committed for trial,' the justice said. "'At present there is no actual proof that any of them were concerned in this murderous outrage, beyond the fact that they were taken in the place where it was planned. The suspicion is strong that some at least were engaged in it. Upon the persons of all of them were valuable daggers, chains, and other ornaments, which could not have been come by honestly.' I doubt not that they form part of the gang which has so long been a terror to peaceful travellers alike by the road and river, and it may be that some who have been robbed will be able to identify the articles taken upon them. They are committed for trial, firstly, as having been concerned in the attack upon Dame Alice Vernon, secondly, as being notorious ill-livers and robbers, thirdly, as having resisted lawful arrest by the King's officers. The greatest criminal in the affair is not at present before me, but it may be that from such information as Dame Vernon may be able to furnish, and from such confessions as justice will be able to wring from the prisoners, he will at the trial stand beside his fellows. Walter returned to town with his companions. On reaching the armourers they found a retainer of the Earl of Talbot awaiting them, with the message that the Lady Alice Vernon wished the attendance of Walter Fletcher, whose name she had learned from the Lord Mayor, as that of the lad, to whom she and her daughters owed their lives, noon on the following day at the residence of the Earl of Talbot. "'That is the worst of an adventure,' Walter said crossly, after the retainer had departed. "'One can't have a bit of excitement without being sent for and thanked and stared at. I would rather fight the best swordsman in the city than have to go down to the mansion of Earl Talbot with my cap in my hand.' Geoffrey <laughs> laughed. "'You must indeed have your cap in your hand, Walter, for you need not bear yourself in that spirit. The apprentice of a London citizen may have just as much honest pride and independence as the proudest earl at Westminster. But carry not independence too far. Remember that if you yourself had received a great service, you would be hurt if the donor refused to receive your thanks.' And it would be churlish indeed were you to put on sullen looks, or to refuse to accept any present which the lady, whose life you have saved, may make you. It is strange indeed that it should be Dame Vernon, whose husband, Sir Jasper Vernon, received the fiefs of Westerham and Hyde. Why should it be curious that it is she? Walter asked. Oh, Geoffrey said rather confusedly. I was not thinking. That is, I, I mean that it was curious, because— Bertha Fletcher was for years dependent on the family of Sir Rowland Summers, who was killed in the Troubles when the King took the reins of government in his hands, and his lands, being forfeit, were given to Sir Jasper Vernon, who aided the King in that affair. "'I wish you would tell me about that,' Walter said. "'How was it that there was any trouble as to King Edward having kingly authority?' "'It happened in this way,' Geoffrey said. "'King Edward the Second, his father, was a weak prince,' governed wholly by favourites, and unable to hold in check the turbulent barons. His queen, Isabella of France, sister of the French king, a haughty and ambitious woman, 
determined to snatch the reins of power from the indolent hands of her husband, and after a visit to her brother, she returned with an army from Hanalt, in order to dethrone him. She was accompanied by her eldest son, and after a short struggle the king was dethroned. He had but few friends, and men thought that under young Edward would already given promise of virtue and wisdom, some order might be introduced into the realm. He was crowned Edward III, thus, at the early age of fifteen, usurping the throne of his father. The real power, however, remained with Isabella, who was president of the Council of Regency, and who, in her turn, was governed by her favourite, Mortimer. England soon found that the change which had been made was far from beneficial. The government was by turns weak and oppressive. The employment of foreign troops was regarded with the greatest hostility by the people, and the insolence of Mortimer alienated the great barons. Finally, the murder of the dethroned king excited throughout the kingdom a feeling of horror and loathing against the queen. All this feeling, however, was confined to her. Edward, who was but a puppet in her hands, being regarded with affection and pity. Soon after his succession, the young king was married to our queen, Philippa of Hanalt, who is as good as she is beautiful, and who is loved from one end of the kingdom to the other. I can tell you the city was a sight to see when she entered with the king. Such pageants and rejoicing were never known. They were so young, he not yet sixteen, and she but fourteen, and yet to bear on their shoulders the weight of the state. A braver-looking lad and a fairer girl mine eyes never looked on. It was soon after this that the events arose which led to war with France. But this is too long a tale for me to tell you now. The Prince of Wales was born on the 15th of June, 1330, two years after the royal marriage. So far, the king had acquiesced quietly in the authority of his mother, but he now paid a visit to France, and doubtless the barons around him there took advantage of his absence from her tutelage to shake her influence over his mind, and at the same time a rising took place at home against her authority. This was suppressed, and the Earl of Kent, the king's uncle, was arrested and executed by Isabella. This act of severity against his uncle no doubt hastened the prince's determination to shake off the authority of his haughty mother, and to assume the reins of government himself. The matter, however, was not easy to accomplish. Mortimer, having the whole of the royal revenue at his disposal, had attached to himself by ties of interest a large number of barons, and had in his pay nearly two hundred knights and a large body of men-at-arms. Thus it was no easy matter to arrest him. It was determined that the deed should be done at the meeting of the Parliament at Nottingham. Here Mortimer arrived with Isabella in royal pomp. They took their abode at the castle, while the king and other members of the royal family were obliged to content themselves with inferior place of residence. The gates of the castle were locked at sunset, and the keys brought by the constable, Sir William Elland, and handed to the queen herself. This knight was a loyal and gallant gentleman, and regarded Mortimer with no affection, and when he received the king's commands to assist the barons, charged to arrest him at once, agreed to do so. 
he was aware of the existence of a subterranean communication leading from the interior of the castle to the outer country, and by this, on the night of the 19th October, 1330, he led nine resolute knights, the Lords Montague, Suffolk, Stafford, Mullins, and Clinton, with three brothers of the name of Bohun, and Sir John Neville into the heart of the castle. Mortimer was found surrounded by a number of his friends. On the sudden entry of the knights, known to be hostile to Mortimer, and his friends drew their swords, and a short but desperate fight took place. Many were wounded, and Sir Hugh Turpleton and Richard Monmouth were slain. Mortimer was carried to London, and was tried and condemned by Parliament, and executed for felony and treason. Several of his followers were executed, and others were attacked in their strongholds and killed. Among these was Sir Roland Somers. Queen Isabella was confined in Castle Risings, where she still remains a prisoner. Such, Walter, were the troubles which occurred when King Edward first took up the reins of power in this realm, and now let's to supper, for I can tell you that my walk to Kingston has given me a marvellous appetite. We are three or four hours' work yet before we go to bed, for that Milan harness was promised for the morrow, and the repairs are too delicate for me entrusted to the men. Tis good to assist the law, but this work of attending as a witness makes a grievous break in the time of a busy man. Tis a pity, Walter, that your mind is so set on soldiering, for you would have made a marvellous good craftsman. However, I reckon that after you have seen a few years of fighting in France, and have got some of your wild blood let out, you will be glad enough to settle down here with me. As you know, our profits are good, and work plentiful. And did I choose, I might hold my head higher than I do among the citizens, and you, if you join me, may well aspire to a place in the common council, aye, and even to an alderman's gown, in which case I may yet be addressing you the very worshipful, my Lord Mayor. <laughs> Walter laughed. A fig for your Lord Mayors. I would a thousand times rather be a simple squire in the following of our young prince. End of chapter 3